And now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 2, continuing our study in this book. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, and the child ministered to Yahweh before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know Yahweh. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before Yahweh. For men abhorred the offering of Yahweh. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your holy, inspired, precious word. We pray that today we would be filled with understanding as you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help me to forget anything that's not helpful, anything that's not useful. Help me to forget anything that's an error, uh, anything that isn't wise. And may we hear you speak through your word today. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. People of God, I, I trust, as well as you know me, I, I trust that you know how much I, I love my children. In fact, I think love is, is almost too small. I adore my children. I absolutely, I, I'm proud of them. I am, I am pleased with them. I love the way that God's love has been manifested to me through my children, how I am sanctified by being their father, how, how I am helped, and, and, and I, I, I love their wit, I love their humor, I love their joy, I love their insights into God's word and their insights into God's world. I, I love them, and I love, and I love your kids too. I really I really do love your kids. I, ho I hope you know that. I hope, I hope you know that, uh, that when I show your kids how much I love them and appreciate them, it's, not, it's, it's genuine. I sincerely love your kids. When I sing Psalm 127 and I acknowledge uh, children are a gift from the Lord, I'm not only giving thanks for my children, but I'm giving thanks for your children too. Your, your kids are a gift to all of us. All of us get to enjoy your children. And I don't think of your children as future church members. You know, maybe, maybe one day they'll, they'll be church members. I don't think of them as second-class members of the body of Christ. They're not halfway into the covenant. They are my brothers and they are my sisters. And I have this unbelievable privilege of joining with you in, in watching them grow, in, in seeing them flourish as servants of the Lord Jesus. I love our children together, all of them, and I really am optimistic for the future when I see all of our all of our young people and how they're growing and maturing. However, as much as I love your kids and as much as I love my kids, I don't love them more than anything. There's someone I love more than my kids and someone I love more than your kids. My children know that I love the Lord Jesus more than I love them. You say, well, that, that sounds kind of harsh. That sounds kind of cold. No, no, listen to me. I love my children. I'm sorry. I love the Lord Jesus more than I love my children. And the way that I show them that is that they know that I'm more concerned about pleasing the Lord Jesus 
than I am about pleasing them. They know that I'm more concerned about making Jesus happy than I am making them happy. I'm, I, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 10, he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said that. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And as much as we love our sons and daughters, we must not love them more than we love the Lord. What's it called when you love something or someone more than the Lord Jesus? What's that called? That's called idolatry. What's it called when you receive a gift from God and you love that more than God? It's called idolatry. And idolatry in the scriptures is often paired with slavery. You become enslaved to the thing that you love more than God. You serve things or people who aren't God, and then you become enslaved to them. You become in, addicted to them. Your world becomes distorted and twisted around your idol. And when we do that to our children, when we make them idols, when we love them more than we love the Lord Jesus, we're not really loving them. We're, we're in fact abusing them. When we turn our children into idols, we are turning our children into monsters. We end up putting expectations upon them that they can never live up to. They weren't designed to be gods. God didn't make them to be gods. And so if they are our gods, when they mess up, as they will, they will because they are sinners and they aren't God. When they mess up, if we have idolized them, then we can't oppose their sin. We've, we've put ourselves in a position where we can't correct them. We have to defend them in their sin. We have to cover up their sin. And in so doing, we make ourselves enemies of Christ. When we cover up and ignore their sin, we make ourselves enemies of the Lord Jesus. So we, so we hear Jesus say this. Jesus said, I'll say it again. Jesus said, he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We hear Jesus say that, but at some level, I think, and I admit it myself, I, that, that makes me a little queasy. It makes me, you know, as, as parents, we think, oh boy, uh, I'm a little bit nervous. How can I love Jesus more than my kids? As if we had a limited supply of this thing called love. And once, once our love uh, uh, reservoir runs out, then we're all out of love and we can't give it to anybody else. So that if uh, we love Jesus more, that must mean we love our kids less because we've, we've used up all of our love reservoirs. But that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works at all. The deeper our love for the Lord Jesus, the deeper our love for our children grows. In fact, loving your children more than, love, more than you love Jesus is loving them too little. Let me say that again. Loving your children more than Jesus is loving your children too little. How can it be true love if you're an idolater? How can it be true love when you're setting yourself against the God who is the very definition of, of love? You would love your children more if you love Jesus more than them. You would love your children more if you love Jesus more than them. This may be hard to hear. It may be hard to understand. We get to see all of this lived out in living color in the first chapters of 1 Samuel. Remember, 
as the book opened last week in the first chapter, uh, we, we saw a barren woman pouring her heart out, weeping and praying to God, God, give me a son. And we might say on the surface, oh, well, right there, that looks pretty idolatrous. That looks pretty selfish. She should just be happy without a son and learn how to be content. She's just wanting to fill her self-image of what she thinks a mother uh, ought to look like or what a woman in Israel ought to look like. And, uh, but, but she's just being so selfish in, in asking for a son. Well, that's totally disproven because she prays for a son. Why? So she can give him away. She asks for a son so that she can give him to the Lord. She prays this, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him right back to you to serve you. And after the son is born and after he's weaned, she does that very thing. And then she sings this wonderful song, not about her own fulfillment as a woman, her own fulfillment in motherhood, though those are high and noble and praiseworthy things. She sings a song about the salvation of the Lord and about the work of God to defeat his enemies and judge the whole earth. There's nothing selfish or idolatrous at all about what Hannah asks for because... It's very clear, even before he's born, Hannah loves the Lord more than her son. So when the boy is born, she keeps her vow and she gives her son to the Lord. And then she's blessed with uh, not only that child who doesn't, Samuel doesn't cease to be her son, but she's blessed with five more children. Now throughout these early pages of Samuel, Hannah and her son, are contrasted with the priest Eli and his two sons who are also serving at the tabernacle, the two sons who are priests, Hophni and Phinehas. Every, every time we'll read about something evil and twisted and awful and disturbing that the sons of Eli are doing, we get an encouraging little note, a little, a little bit of news about what Samuel is up to. So these two stories are juxtaposed in this uh, section of Samuel. We get the decline of the house of Eli and the rise uh, of, of Samuel as a prophet and a judge and a servant of the Lord. And we get a hint of this new thing that God is doing with Samuel as, as Eli's house is spiraling into uh, the, the pit. Uh, so, so what about Hophni and Phinehas? What about these two sons? What do we read about them, the sons of Eli the priest? The Bible says, and we read it just a minute ago, Eli's sons were corrupt. Your translation may say, if you've got the King James, I think it says sons of Belial. I love that. They were sons of Belial. What does that mean? Well, they're worthless men. They're sons of worthlessness. They don't know Yahweh. They're unbelievers dressed up like priests. And they're abusing their position as priests in order to make themselves rich and fat. They're they're quite similar to the priests that Jesus is going to run into during his ministry on the earth. They bring shame. Hophni and Phinehas bring shame to their father Eli, and they're the poster boys for a a nation that's gone off the rails. They behave like Canaanites at the tabernacle of the Lord. They worship like the Canaanites, sleeping with the girls who assemble at the sanctuary, and they steal offerings from God's people, even stealing the Lord's portion of those offerings. So brazen and so bold and so much, so much hubris they bring to this. They are leading Israel astray. And remember, as we saw last week, it was the failure of the Levites that have put Israel in this position. That's a big reason why Israel is suffering under the oppression of the Philistines. God left the Levites to husband Israel. He left them there to protect the bride 
and to especially protect the bride at the sanctuary. There's all these, these parallels between the tabernacle and the garden. And uh, we have snakes in the garden with Hophni and Phinehas. We have snakes right there in the, in the sanctuary. They are abusing their positions to make themselves rich and, and fat. Instead of protecting the bride, they are abusing the bride at the sanctuary in the garden. And we get their story interwoven with the story of Samuel. We read about Samuel ministering to Yahweh before the priests in verse 11, uh, as you heard just a minute ago. Then we get several verses of the, of, the, of the sins of Eli's sons. In verse 17, we read about the sin of these young men being very great before the Lord and the way they abhorred the offering of the Lord. And then we get some more about Samuel. So I want to I kind of read uh, the rest of chapter 2, and then we're going to stop and get the whole lay of the land here. So... Um, in, uh, we'll pick up in verse 18. Samuel was but Samuel. See, we just heard the men, Hophni and Phinehas, abhorred the offering of Yahweh, but Samuel administered before Yahweh, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, Yahweh give you descendants from this woman for the, for the loan that was given to Yahweh. Then they would go to their own home. And Yahweh visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before Yahweh. So time is passing the boy is growing, but the sins of Hophni and Phinehas are getting worse. Verse 22, Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. For you make Yahweh's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against Yahweh, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because Yahweh desired to kill them. So Eli is disturbed and he is ashamed about what his boys are doing but he really has no influence over them. He's got this very lame, half-hearted rebuke. He's, you've disappointed me. No, my sons, no, you can't do that. But he doesn't have any influence over them to stop them. And then now we get a little bit more about, uh, about Samuel. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor, both with Yahweh and men. We hear that somewhere else, don't we? Hear that in Luke 2 about Jesus, that Jesus grew in favor with Yahweh and man. He grew in wisdom and stature. Um, and Luke is going to repeat that about Jesus. But then verse 27, a prophet comes to Eli. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says Yahweh, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar? to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, Yahweh God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. 
But now Yahweh says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will be not an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that I will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Hannah's song is coming to pass right before our eyes in the words of this prophet. The corrupt men in control are being brought low, cast out of their positions of power, while a little boy is being raised up to take their place. You see how carefully layered these two accounts are. So as we see time pass by and we see the words uh, we read about Eli's sons get more and more desperate and depressing, we have the hope in Samuel that things are not going to be this way forever. There's going to be a change. A change is coming. We have a boy that's been given to the Lord and is being faithful. He's being obedient. What a waste it would have been if Hannah had given her son to Eli only to watch him turn out like Hophni and Phinehas. What what protection the Lord must have set around Samuel to keep him from the nonsense and the corruption of Hophni and and Phinehas, that he stayed out of trouble. Uh, Eli's sons would have been older than 30, probably even older than 40 at this time. They might have been in their 40s. Samuel's just a boy, but if you've ever been around cruel, wicked, perverse men and how they try to corrupt young people, you can just imagine the kind of nonsense that Hophni and Phinehas might have been goading Samuel into the whole time that he's growing up there. How they might have mocked him and made fun of him and teased him. You know, look at you, your little, your little priestly robes. Who do, you, who do you think you are? Hey, we'll show you how to be a priest. Here's what a priest does as they go to violate a woman or go to steal an offering. Off the, uh, off the altar. Somehow, Samuel is able to keep out of all this. Somehow, Samuel is spared. He wears the robes of a priest that his mother makes him, while the sons of Eli are setting a trap for themselves to lose their priestly vestments. But now that we have this wide-angle view of the chapter, let's look at exactly what Hophni and Phinehas were up to. The first kind of sin that they were engaged in was liturgical sin. Leviticus and Deuteronomy outline precisely what a priest is supposed to do with an offering when it's brought before him. Some of you have jobs where you have more details to remember than these priests had to remember. I know when we read Leviticus, we think, oh, it's so complicated and so, I don't know how you could keep all that straight. This was their life. This was their job. They had it down. They were supposed to memorize it and know it inside and out. And it's really not that that difficult. It really is not that hard to understand. So they knew that when certain offerings were brought to the tabernacle, specific portions of the offering 
Specific portions of meat were to go to the priest. Why, do, why does some of the offering go to the priest? Well, the priest has no land. They had no inheritance in Israel. And when they're serving in the tabernacle, they don't have any means to go out and raise crops and take care of animals. So that the way that the Lord provided for them and for their families was that they were to take specific portions of the meat that was offered on the altar. And as we saw last week, when uh, Elkanah and his family come to Shiloh, uh, they make an offering and then, and then the man gives uh, portions of the offering to his family. And that's what they did. They ate there before the Lord at the, at the, uh, at the altar. Uh, most sacrifices ended with communion, with a, with a shared meal, with the priest, with the people, with the Lord, as the Lord uh, consumed the, the offering on the fire. So, um, so, so they knew what they were supposed to do. And this is how the Lord provided for them was that they were to take specific portions of meat that they were offered. So when the offering was a bull or a sheep, the priest got the shoulder, he got the cheeks, and he got the stomach, you know, like the chops, right? He got the chops, he got the, he got the stomach, which you could do things with, and, and he got the shoulder, which is a, is a nice uh, cut of meat. Also, he was to get the first fruits of the grain, the wine, the oil, and if a, and a sheep was sacrificed, he could have the fleece. He could take the fleece to go use for garments or, or uh, make things out of wool or whatever. So, so the priest was already getting some really good stuff as one who ministered before Yahweh. When these sacrifices are brought, there would have been an incredible surplus of really good things. Oil and wine and grain and meat and fleece. These things pouring into the tabernacle as God's people worship. But Eli's sons weren't satisfied with the portions that God designated to them. And instead, they got everything that they could get out of the deal. Rather than waiting for the fat to burn off the altar before taking their portions, Hophni and Phinehas took raw meat. And the people stopped them and said, no, 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 wait a minute. You're not supposed to do that. See, the people know God's word better than the priests do. The, the people know what God is asking for. And they know that God wants the, the fat burned off first. That's, that's his portion. The fat gets burned off and God considers that. Uh, that's, that's what I eat. That's what I consume. And the worshipers protest and say, that's the Lord's portion. But Hophni and Phinehas threaten violence. And they take their part before the Lord even gets his part. And whatever was left over, they leave to the worshiper. So whatever's in the pan or whatever's in the pot or whatever's in the cauldron, they bring the long barbecue forks and they stick it in there. Whatever they get out, that's mine. That's mine and that's mine. And you take whatever's left to your family to eat that before the Lord. That's your that's your communion. So, so they're not only robbing God as if that were a small thing, but they're robbing the worshiper too. I mean, imagine if, as the deacons are bringing communion around, they just, they just take the cup, say, let me get a little sip of that. Let me, let me get a little something. Let me get a little bread. And you take what is left over. You take the little crumbs. You take whatever, whatever's left over after that. You see, that would be ridiculous. That would be obnoxious. And that's what these men are doing. This isn't a small thing. It's not like they weren't clear on what they're supposed to do. They have the manual. They have the guide for how sacrifices are to be conducted. Sacrifices are well established to be performed in a certain sequence without any variation. And so something like this is high-handed rebellion toward God. This is not a mistake. This is not some, oh, they're just a little bit confused. They treat the liturgy of the tabernacle as a great big 
joke. It's, it's all a big joke. They don't care about what any of it means. They don't care about the significance of the offering. They don't care about the holiness or the power of God. They don't fear the God that these people are coming to worship. They just know, hey, we might get some tenderloin out of the meal. That's all we're looking for. And that was, that was a big deal. That was, that was huge. But that's not all they did. The other thing that they did was that they were sleeping with the women who were serving at the tabernacle. There's a connection here between the way that they're treating these girls, these maidens, who come to serve at the tabernacle, and the way that the Levites, in general, are treating the bride that Yahweh gave them to protect. So rather than covering their nakedness, and rather than protecting their virginity, and preserving them, and preserving their honor, these two boys are stripping them and violating them right in the sight of Israel, right in front of everybody. And the, and the way that they're doing this right uh, at the tabernacle, while serving at the tabernacle, indicates that they're effectively stripping the coverings off the tabernacle. In stripping the clothes off these women, they might as well be tearing down the veils of the tabernacle. They have no regard for holy things. They have no regard for boundaries. They have no idea of this is off limits to me. They go wherever they please. They take whatever they want. They're not under authority, and these two men submit to no one. This is why young people, those of you who are within the sound of my voice, young people, teenagers, young people, this is why boys and girls who want to cross physical boundaries before marriage, it's why they can't be trusted. They, they, they want to take what's not theirs. They want to they push you to break covenants. They want to they keep you from, from respecting boundaries. That's what Hophni and Phineas are all about. They don't respect any boundaries. They uncover things that need to be covered. They defile things that are holy. And they dishonor things that are to be honorable. Uh, and so you can't trust someone who doesn't have any boundaries. You cannot trust someone who will not respect your boundaries. They're like Hophni and Phineas. And you see how sin just kind of leaks out all over the place when you allow it to go unchecked. They start, where do they start? They start by not taking worship seriously. And then they start not taking marriage and sexual purity seriously. And ultimately, they end up hating the Lord altogether. You, you can't, you can't uh, convince yourself. You may try but it's fruitless and it's foolish to convince yourself that I've got, I've got sin kind of cordoned off in this one little area of my life. Everything else is fine. You know, I give, I serve, I worship, I sing, I'm, I work hard. I've just got this little territory, this little, this little area where sin is allowed to grow and flourish and bear fruit, but, but I've got a fence around it. And, and it's not going anywhere. It's, it's like having a fire in the back room of your house and just pulling the door closed and saying, ah, it's all right. I'm okay with that. I'm all right with this fire in the back of my house. Before long, it consumes the whole thing. We can't ever think that we've got sin under control, that we can sin over here and we keep our nose clean in all other areas of our life. We're going to be okay. No, before we know it, it gets out of control. And we're away from God and away from his church and away from his people. It's systemic, it's organic, it's holistic. Sin gets all over you and it does these boys. They start, you just imagine how easily it starts. Man, I'm hungry. I'm tired of eating lamb chops. 
I'm tired of eating lamb shoulder. Wouldn't you like some tenderloin? Man, I'd like some tenderloin. Well, just stick your fork over there. The next time a, worship, a worshiper comes up here, let's do it. And they kind of protest, but they get away with it. Eli doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything tomorrow either. He doesn't say anything next Thursday. Sabbaths go by. Years go by. Eli doesn't say anything. They take more and they take more and they take more. They violate one girl. They violate a couple girls. They violate six or seven girls. Eli doesn't stop them. He doesn't say anything. And there is never anyone who calls them on their boundary-breaking behavior. So what's daddy been up to all this time? How is it that they're allowed to act this way without any repercussion? Well, the Bible says Eli hears what they're up to. Is he so far out of touch that he has to hear what's going on from somebody else? He says, I've heard, sons, I've heard about this thing. He doesn't see it with his own eyes. We read later that, that Eli is nearly blind. And physical blindness in the Bible, like Isaac's blindness, remember Isaac was blind, it's indicative of spiritual blindness. Eli is obviously not a very discerning father. He's not a connected father. He's not a father who knows what his sons are, are doing nor has he cultured the respect of his sons to the point that when he speaks, they listen. They don't take him seriously. There's this repetition of the word here. Eli hears what's going on, but his sons don't hear him when he pleads with them. And Eli says this, if one man sins against another, God is going to vindicate the one that's wronged. But if you sin against Yahweh himself, who's going to stick up for you? Who's going to speak up for you here? He speaks in a parable. He speaks some wisdom, but they just laugh at the old man. Yahweh, huh? What are you talking about? He hasn't stopped us so far. I mean, we're, we're eating good. We're getting everything that we want. He hasn't done anything. Let me, let me just keep on doing what I'm doing. And then comes that chilling phrase in verse uh, 25. Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because Yahweh desired to kill them. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like, you know, wait, why, why didn't they hear their father? Oh, because Yahweh desired to kill them. It's sort of like what God desired to do with Pharaoh. Uh, Yahweh uh, hardened his heart because Yahweh wanted to destroy them. God has already turned them over and God has already decided, I'm going to judge these men. I don't need them anymore because I've got my secret weapon waiting in the wings. I've got Samuel who is growing up faithfully, and he's going to take over. This little boy who's diligently figuring out the right way to sacrifice and the right way to serve God at the altar. Now, if we just stop here, though, we might be compelled to feel a little sorry for Eli. I might say, look, you know, he tried, he confronted him, it didn't really work out, but, you know, what, what's he supposed to do? He's an old man. They're grown men. What else is Eli supposed to do? He told them that what they're doing is wrong. Is he really to blame for what's going on here? I mean, can we really lay on Eli's shoulders the full weight of his son's sin? Well, yeah, <laughs> because that's what the prophet does. When the prophet comes, the prophet blames Eli for what is going on because of this one thing. Eli, the prophet says very clearly, Eli honors his sons more than he honors Yahweh. That was Eli's sin. You honor your sons more than you honor God. And it looks like Eli's getting fat off of the offerings too. Later on, Eli dies when he falls off a stool and breaks his neck. And it says, because he was a very heavy man, he's getting fat off of these uh, offerings as well, eating all the rich fat portions that belong to the Lord, eating the food that his sons steal. He's getting rich off this deal. 
And the next chapter, when, when the Lord speaks to Samuel, the Lord tells Samuel that Eli is being judged because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Here's the punishment. Not that Hophni and Phinehas are idiots, not that Hophni and Phinehas are, are blockheads, because Eli didn't restrain them, because Eli loved them more than he loved God. That's why, that's why his house is judged. It, would, it, would, it might be appropriate to sympathize with Eli if he were disgusted by his son's behavior. If we read about Eli praying, God, judge these sons of mine, straighten them out, and if they will not repent, take them off the face of the earth. We don't get a prayer like that from Eli, do we? If he had put himself bodily in the way of their rape and theft of the people of God, if we were to read about Eli offering sacrifices for his sons and repenting on their behalf the way that Job did, but we don't get any of that. Instead, he lets them do whatever they want to do, and the Lord who knows all things knows that Eli isn't doing everything he can to stop them. God knows what Eli could have done, and God says, you're not doing it. <laughs> you love them more than you love me. Eli could have at least seen to it that if they're going to sin, at least they're not going to sin wearing the robes of a priest. I am going to defrock you. I am going to excommunicate you. You keep on sinning, but you're not going to do it here at the tabernacle. You go on, but I'm going to remove you from this office. But he didn't. He didn't. It was Eli's responsibility not to cover their sins, but to expose their sins. And the fact that he did not deal with his sons this way meant that he honored his sons more than he honored God. He feared his sons more than he feared God. And that spelled destruction for him and his house and for the whole congregation of Israel. He destroyed Israel by not correcting his sons. He destroyed the worship of the living God by not correcting his sons. Now this prophet's charge, what the prophet says to Eli, should make all of his parents sit up straight and take notice and assess the way we view our children. What, is, what does the prophet say? Again, you honor your sons more than the Lord. How is it possible for us to honor our children more than God? Well, there are many ways. By indulging them, when what they're doing is clearly unacceptable to the Lord. We make what they want to do more important than what God has said. And we cover for it and we make excuses for it and we say, oh, but it's okay. I mean, it's, I mean, it's the 90s. <laughs> How many times did we hear that in the 90s? It was still the 90s, right? That's, you know, it's 2017. What are you going to do? Kids got to find their own way. They got to do their own thing. Let's cover it up. Let's make excuses. Let's, let's indulge them. You love them more than you love God. You love them more than you love God's word. Failure to discipline your children is loving them more than you love God. You're saying your present momentary comfort and happiness in being foolish, in sinning, your present momentary happiness is more important than what God says. That's, that's what we say. We treat God's word like a joke when we fail to discipline our children. We love our children more than God. When we allow them and their activities to be more important than worship, we love them more than we love the Lord. You wanna teach your children that God is less important than a lot of other things? Well, let, let stuff get in the way of worship all the time. 
do things that make you so tired on Saturday night that you can't make it to worship on Sunday morning. That's an easy way. Say, yeah, that's more important than worship. That is, that is imminently, cosmically more important than standing before the living God and confessing our sins and hearing his word and eating at his table. Yes, child, that is more important. Show them how you have higher affections for some things more than God. You want to raise idolaters? I've got a plan for raising idolaters. Let's schedule a few baseball tournaments on Sunday morning. You got them. You got a generation of idolaters because you're saying that's more important than God. That's more important than the worship of the living God. The prophet told Eli, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. You want God to hear your prayers? You want God to take you seriously when you call upon him? You want God to open his ears and open the storehouse of heaven to bless you when you pray? If you want God to take you seriously, you got to take him seriously. What does he say? He says, if you don't take me seriously, I'm not going to take you seriously. That's the way it works. You want to honor from me? You got to honor me. You want me to esteem you lightly? Don't pay attention to me. How else might we honor our children more than the Lord? Well, we honor them more than the Lord when we try to cover for their failures and their sins rather than calling them to repentance. When we let our children's demands keep us from instructing them. Our children can make things very cloudy for us if we, if we let them. Like Eli, Eli was blind. You and I have blind spots when it comes to our children. We have blind spots. We have to admit that. We have cataracts that keep us from seeing everything that we need to see regarding our children. We love them so much that we want them to be happy and successful. We want it so badly that we're, attempting, we're tempted to cut corners for them and make excuses for them and put up with their sin. And when we do that, again, we're taking them more seriously than we're taking God. We're making them an idol. And when we do that, we drag both of us down to hell. Now, now seeing this and understanding this, we know our, our children do bring us honor and, and our, do, our, our children do bring us shame. I, I say this to my kids, you know, what you do affects me, what I do affects you. We're, we're in this family together and we, what we do affects each other all the time. And, and it seems like they can, you know this, children pick the best and most opportune times to embarrass you with the most uh, uh, cash value that they can get out of a situation. What is the biggest investment of embarrassment that I can make? And they find that moment so they get the highest payout. That's, that's what they do. Sometimes, on the other hand, they surprise us with what they're able to do. They surprise us and say, wow, I didn't know you had it in you. You were so helpful. You were so respectful. You were so delightful. They, we, we do affect each other and they do affect us, but, but this is what we got to keep in mind when it comes to their sin. They aren't us. They aren't even extensions of us. They are individuals who are accountable to God for their own sin. And so there may be times where we are called upon to stand with the Lord Jesus and stand with the church against our children and against their sins. When it, when it comes to, we got we to get good at practicing this when they're, when they're small, when they're little, and little playground arguments come up. 
those little things that always come up and you're dealing with these little personalities. The temptation there, and I know especially when my daughter was very little, first child, you kind of have that hover, that kind of uh, helicopter mentality, you want to make sure everything's right, want to make sure everything's perfect. When there's a little spat on the playground, the temptation is to always take your kid's side immediately before you even hear the whole story because my kid would never lie. My kid would never be rude or selfish or hateful except this morning six times before we got to the playground. My child would never do that, right? And as these kids get older, it only gets more difficult and the relationships only get more complicated. So we need to be sure that as these opportunities come up, that we get it straight now while they're still young. You know what? I'm not always going to stick up for you before hearing the whole story. I'm not always going to stick up for you without exercising clear judgment. I love you. I love you so much. But I'm not on your side against the truth. I'm not on your side and on the side of your sin against what God says is right. You know, when it comes to your sin, I'm on the Lord's side. And when it comes to my sin, I want you to be on the Lord's side. Your children need to know that you are on the side of truth. You're on the side of the Lord. We, we can't be always in the business of making excuses or making exceptions for our kids while believing at the same time that all other kids are corrupting influences. You know, if we confess that our, sin, our, our kids are indeed sinners, then we must be at least equally worried about the corruption that they bring to other kids. You know, if, if I'm a sinner and I've passed on the Adamic sin nature to my children, what terrible attitudes of mine, what terrible behaviors of mine are they teaching other kids? I need to be at least equally as worried about that as I am about the corrupting influences of my brothers and sisters' children. So Eli didn't think through any of this. Eli, this, this is not, none of this crosses his mind, apparently, at least when they're adults. He stuck up for his boys unequivocally. He just, he just did it. He, and that put him on the wrong side of the table when it came to facing the Lord. Uh, on the other hand, you have Hannah and her boy. She loves the Lord more than she loves her son. I expressed last week how difficult it is to imagine giving up your three-year-old child, to just take him to the tabernacle and drop him off. How tough would that be to give up your three-year-old boy? But I said also last week, to a great extent, that's what we all have to do. We all give our little ones over to the Lord and make sure that they know you don't belong to yourself. Your body is not your own. What does the Heidelberg Catechism say? I am not my own, but belong both body and soul, both in life and death to my Lord Jesus Christ. You don't belong to yourself. Your body is not your own. Young people is another thing to wake up and hear. You're, you don't belong to yourself. That means you can't do anything you want to with your body or to your body. You belong to the Lord Jesus. In light of this, we can say to our children, I really don't care what you want to do or what you think. Ultimately, you belong to Jesus. And if you insist on sinning, well, he's going to deal with you. And I'm going to be praying that he does. And I'm not going to cover for you. I'm not going to make excuses for you. I'm not going to ignore your sin. I'm going to pray for your repentance. He might be merciful to you and he might give you time to turn and repent, but I'm going to be praying that he doesn't let you rest until you do. That, that's love. Eli didn't love his sons. Eli hated his sons. It, it might look like he was being long-suffering and gentle. 
It might have looked like, oh, you know, he's just being so patient with them boys, and they, they just run right over him. He's not being patient. He is abusing Israel. He's abusing the congregation of the Lord by not correcting his sons. He's abusing the worship of God. He is blaspheming against the holiness of God by letting his sons continue. God forbid, God prevent us from repeating this horrible, destructive behavior. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his mercies. Cling to his cross. Love him more than anything, and you will love your children more than they could possibly be loved otherwise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for our children, and we give you thanks for the way that you've given them to us. And I pray that we would not repeat the sin of Eli. Father, uh, may we be more like Hannah. We commit our children to you, knowing that, that we need your direction and your fatherly care over them more than, more than we can possibly provide. So Father, make us uh, faithful, we pray. Give us your Holy Spirit every day so that we can do this to your honor and glory. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's continue worshiping.